Please open your Bibles with me to the book of the prophet Micah. We're going to begin a short series through the book of Micah, and the reason for that is purely practical. Um, The summertime, as is evident, is a time when various families are here or not here or they're visiting. Uh, And also, I have two more absences coming up. The end of the month, I'll be away from my sister's wedding. And then in August, I'll also be preaching in Bakersfield one Sunday. So with people here and there, including myself, sometimes it's best to delay our main series until after school starts. And Micah will give us six sermons, that's the plan, uh, and will take us perfectly to the beginning of September when we can resume First Peter. So my plan is to preach through Micah in six sermons. And this morning, we will look at chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Micah. When I was growing up, um, my brothers and I, we would always get excited and point to each other when our book was mentioned. So anytime 1st or 2nd Samuel, I have two, were mentioned, I would elbow my brothers, that's me. And anytime Micah came up, we'd, that's Micah. And Nathan doesn't get a book, so. Bummer, dude. He is a prophet, but he doesn't get a book. So the book of Micah, six sermons, and what I'd like to do, ordinarily you know my practice, is to read through the passage and then uh, go through the body of the sermon, but since we're dealing with two chapters, I think that it's best for this sermon to read through those two chapters and make comments as I go to explain it, and then we'll have four lessons at the end of that. So Ordinarily, it can be somewhat tiresome if someone's making comments through a reading, uh, but we're going to do that in this case to explain it in one go and then have lessons drawn from the text afterwards. So we're reading through Micah 1 and 2, but understand that that reading will be paused as we explain it uh, along the way. Let's begin the reading of of God's word in Micah chapter 1 and verse 1 which says, The word of the Lord, the word of Jehovah, the word of Yahweh, that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, most prophetical books, many of them have a historical introduction such as this to give us an understanding of when this prophet was active, the time of his ministry, And Micah gives us a very clear historical marker and context for his work as he mentions three kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which are kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. But notice that Micah also states that his vision, his prophecy, is not just for Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem, but it's also for the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital was Samaria. He says, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, those are the capital cities of the northern and the southern kingdom. Now, in your bulletin is a little handout, which I've prepared for you and our secretary has also prepared for you, which you may find useful just to get a, to situate ourselves in the history of Israel, which you may or may not know well, depending on uh, whether you went to VBS or whether you went to Sunday school growing up and such things. And you'll see in this handout a timeline zoomed in for the life of 
Micah, the time when he was active. Uh, And in the upper part of that timeline, you'll see the kingdom of Judah and the kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And then in the middle of the timeline, you will see um, the prophets who were active during this time, such as Isaiah, Micah, and Hosea. And then in the bottom half of the timeline, you'll see the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and certain events happening in the world, especially ones that relate to the southern kingdom. Uh, You'll see the rise of Assyria and the destruction of Samaria, that's Israel's capital city in the north, and the deportation and exile of the Israelite kingdom in the north by the Assyrians. And so what's important to understand is as we read the book of Micah, He's prophesying while the kingdom of Israel still exists, before the fall of Samaria. So we can put this prophecy between about 750 B.C. on the left to about 722 B.C., uh, moving right from there, which is a period of around 30 years. So the book of Micah is looking at that period of 30 years between 750 and 722 B.C., prior to the fall of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but I always have really loathed the B.C. timeline that goes backwards. I just, I, it doesn't work with my brain. Maybe you can get it, but when people just start saying centuries B.C., I think I have to try so hard to understand that. But the visual timeline may help you a bit to understand how much time and when we're talking about for um, Micah and his message to Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom of Israel. So what is Micah's message for Samaria and for Jerusalem, that is, to the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah? Let's read verses 2 through 4. Micah says, Hear, you peoples, all of you pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Here, the language of a courtroom God speaks from his holy temple as a witness. So Micah is the mouthpiece of God who a witness is testifying and their testimony is going to bring an accusation. I, as witness of your wickedness, accuse you of great sin. And also we see God coming as not just witness, but judge. God is coming down to cause destruction in particular to cause judgment upon the earth but not just the earth in general upon Israel and upon Judah and the language that is being used is cataclysmic language of mountains being leveled and valleys being split and melting like wax God is coming in judgment as a witness against your wickedness and no one can stand before him we might ask the question, but doesn't God delight to do good to his people? Why do the prophets just like to announce bad news? Why would God visit his people in judgment? Or we might ask, therefore, what is his testimony? If he is witness, 
What are the crimes? What are the sins of which God accuses his people that would necessitate or cause such a serious judgment upon them? Well, Micah answers. He tells us. Look at verse 5. He says, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? You'll see throughout this book and the prophets, the kingdom and the capital. Kingdom Israel, capital Samaria. Kingdom Judah, capital Jerusalem. And the capital stands for the country or for the kingdom because that's where its king is, that's where its center of worship is, and so on and so forth. And so Micah is saying that the judgment upon the kingdom is coming because of the wickedness in the capital. The wickedness in Samaria and the wickedness in Jerusalem are bringing judgment upon Israel and upon Judah. And we're going to see in particular that God is calling them out and accusing them of idolatry. He says, what is the high place of Judah? It is Jerusalem. What is their place of worship? But he doesn't say temple. He says high place. Because high places are where people would find a literal high place and offer sacrifices to foreign gods, to idols. They would build altars there or build other uh, instruments of worship. And God is saying that Samaria is a place of idolatry and Jerusalem is a place of idolatry. Now, just a little bit of background and history. You may remember when the kingdom was divided after Solomon between Rehoboam in the southern kingdom of Judah and Jeroboam in the northern kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam, he built a golden calf in Samaria, and he also made a high place in Bethel. And so there were cultic places of worship, official cult centers in the northern kingdom where the, the Samaritans or the, the, the people of the kingdom of Samaria or Israel would go to worship and they would worship the golden calf in Samaria. And it's because of this idolatry that every single king of the northern kingdom of Israel in the books of the Kings and Chronicles receives a negative designation. And so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because they did not remove the idolatry. They promoted it and perpetuated it. And even the ones that killed the prophets of Baal just instituted their own uh, worship, or they allowed the perverted worship of Yahweh through the golden calf and other related idols. So the northern kingdom is full of idolatry with a false temple, with false idols, etc. But Micah is saying Judah... Little sister of big Israel, you're just as guilty. What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? And we see in the Chronicles and Kings that some of the kings of Judah are said to do what is right in the Lord's eyes. Some are said to do what is evil. What's the difference consistently? The Judean kings that purify God's worship are said to be good. Those who do not are said to be bad. What do you need to understand? You need to understand that idolatry is the measure of sin in Israel and Judah, or the primary measure of sin. Do the people worship God rightly? Do the people worship God purely? And does the king lead them in this worship? This is what brings God's judgment or his blessing upon the kingdoms. 
Well, first, Micah proclaims judgment on Samaria and the northern kingdom. Let's read verses 6 and following. What will God do to Israel because of their idolatry? Verse 6. Therefore, because of their wickedness and idolatry, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And in other words, the gold that she has gathered together. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Now this language evokes various things. It evokes Genesis 1, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. It evokes Ezekiel 16, where God accuses Israel of being an unfaithful woman. It it evokes Hosea's use of the same imagery. But it also evokes when Israel made a golden calf at Mount Sinai. And what did God do? He told Moses to grind it into powder, pour it into their water, and make them drink it. If this is what you want to do, you're going to have to drink the consequences of your own actions. And as Micah contemplates the suffering and judgment of Israel, what does he say in verse 8? He says, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals, in other words, howling, and mourning like the ostriches. Do you ever hear about a, a bad accident or something terrible that's happened and it makes you involuntarily shudder with a sense of, of dread? That's what Micah is talking about. He says, when I envision, when I hear these horrible things about the, the judgment that God will pour out upon Israel, he says, it, it makes me lament and wail and shudder and mourn. The prophets were tasked with announcing disaster on their own people. And they knew that the message was true. What was built up will be thrown down. Well, Micah then transitions to address Judah. He's just spoken to Samaria, the northern kingdom. Now in verse 9, he turns to Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. For her wound is incurable. The disease cannot be cured. And it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. The same judgment that was pronounced on Samaria is directed to Jerusalem because the same sin that is in Samaria is in Jerusalem. And what follows in the rest of chapter 1 is like a geographical survey of Judah saying, you will suffer, you will suffer, you will mourn, you will lament. It would be like saying, San Diego, you shall see the suffering, uh, and Santa Ana, you shall see the suffering, and Los Angeles, and Riverside, and San Bernardino, all of Southern California, you will all experience uh, the judgment of God because of Jerusalem and your own sin. So let's read this survey of Judah. Verse 10 and following. Tell it not in Gath, Weep not at all. In Beth Lephrah, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Hesel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good. But disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. 
Therefore you shall give parting gifts to, the, to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Achzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. I want to pause there and just explain a few things. Notice um, that Lachish is mentioned in particular in verse 13, which was one of the fortified cities of Judah. It was one of their larger cities, uh, and as an an army would come south from the north, they'd have to take Lachish before they could get to Jerusalem. And we're told that the sin of Israel was found in Lachish, and that Lachish was a beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, which means at least that the idolatry of Israel was in Lachish and was one of the feeding points into Jerusalem. But it could also be a reference to when Hezekiah stripped the temple of all of its gold and took all of the gold instruments and implements from the temple and he gave them to the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, when Sennacherib besieged and took over Lachish. So Sennacherib of Assyria invades after he's destroyed Israel. He invades to the south. He comes to Lachish of Judah. He utterly destroys it and he takes up camp there preparing to siege Jerusalem. And and Hezekiah sent all of the temple's goods to Sennacherib to try to pay him off. That could be another one of the references that God is saying, you want to give your gold to the Assyrians? Well, I will give you into the hands of your enemies. But it's at least a reference to idolatry found in Lachish, which was also found in uh, Jerusalem. And in verse 15, uh, in Marashah, God defeated a giant Ethiopian army there. In the book of Chronicles, it says it was an army of a million men. And yet God turned them aside and gave Israel the victory. Well, this is saying, don't expect that this time. If you expect salvation at Marashah, you're not going to receive it. Uh, Also in the same verse, it says, the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. That's one of the places that David fled to a cave uh, to escape Saul in a city of defense was, uh, was built there, which is to say, as your king previously fled for refuge down there, you're going to see your king fleeing again. All of this is bad news for all of the parts of the kingdom. And the, the chapter concludes in verse 16 with a promise of exile. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. Those are, are ways of mourning. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. You will die in the land, but your people, your children, will be taken away into exile. So Micah chapter 1 is a straightforward declaration of God's impending judgment on Israel and Judah for their idolatry. But chapter 2 tells us that their sin was far greater than just idolatry. The first four commandments of God's law tell us to love God with our whole heart and worship him rightly. The remaining commandments tell us to love our neighbor and to treat them rightly. And so chapter 2 of Micah shows the sins of Israel and Judah against their brethren. Let's read Micah chapter 2. Woe, that's a, woe is a curse. I, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for I will for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Throughout the prophets, greed and extortion and oppression are regularly identified as horrible sins which the Israelites are committing as the wealthy and the powerful leverage their positions and their power to take what others have. Micah makes it clear that they covet, they want more, and so they make plans and they plot how they can get what they want and they do it through manipulation and oppression. But Micah declares God's judgment upon them. Those who steal others' inheritances will themselves be disinherited. And those who live in pride and power will be humbled and humiliated. But Israel doesn't want to hear it. They don't want to know. They don't want to be told about their wickedness. They really don't want to hear any message that would confront their sin or declare consequences for it. So these covetous oppressors say in verse 6, Do not preach. Do not proclaim. Do not announce. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. There's no judgment coming for us. What are you talking about? And Micah asks them, Are you thinking rightly? Should this be said, verse 7, Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Should it be said, Do not preach? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Micah is saying, why would you reject the message of God? It is by embracing God's message that good and blessing will come upon you. But if you reject God's word and avoid it, you will bring the message of judgment upon yourself. The way to avoid the message of judgment is to embrace the message of judgment. But by rejecting it, you are making it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Micah continues in verse 8 to describe their oppression and their self-delusion by hearing what they want to hear. Verse 8, But lately my people have risen up as an enemy, They're hurting each other. They hurt their own people. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. Those who trusted you, your own people, you oppress them. The women of my people, you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children, you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind, in other words, nothing, vanity, and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. So Micah chapter 1 begins with God coming from his holy temple as a witness against his people through the prophet Micah. And in chapters 1 and 2, he's exposed their sin and declared judgment upon them. 
But the prophets don't just announce bad news. They also announce good news. And so the end of chapter 2 of Micah is a stark and complete contrast, a drastic contrast and reversal as God changes from visiting his people in judgment to visiting his people in salvation. Verses 12 to the end of chapter 2, God speaks in a very different way. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel, and I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. God makes a promise to the people with, with an understanding you will be exiled, you will be made captives, but I will break you out of your captivity and I will gather you together. You are, you're spread throughout the earth by exile and captivity. I will bring you back together. I will free you from your captivity and I myself will be your king and make you my people. God will do this. Well, let's, the, the, the message of Micah 1 and 2, or, or what it means, is not uh, particularly complicated or difficult. If your idea of the prophets is just the visions of Daniel, or some of Zechariah's visions, or, or parts of Ezekiel's visions, if your understanding of the prophets is complicated apocalyptic imagery, and you think, well, I can't understand any of the prophets, then you should understand that it's really just select portions of the prophets that have complicated apocalyptic imagery. Many of them are very straightforward presentations of what Israel has done or what Judah has done and what God's going to do as a result, as well as God's promises of salvation and restoration. So if you're reading through Micah, you can say, oh, I understand what's going on. This is not complicated. This is straightforward. But what does it have to do with us? What does the text say? What does the text mean? And so what? Well, I would like to draw four lessons or four applications from these two chapters and the words of God's prophet Micah. Number one, <clears throat> God's judgment is unbearable and unavoidable. God's judgment is unbearable and unavoidable. We already said that the language of Micah 1 at the beginning when God is coming in judgment is the language of extreme destruction. Mountains being leveled, valleys being split open. Things that are somewhat beyond comprehension because they're beyond experience. But we do have some understanding of apocalyptic events my family got to visit um, Mount Vesuvius on our trip. And you may be familiar with the city of Pompeii that was destroyed by that volcano. We didn't visit Pompeii, but we did visit one of the other cities in the region around the volcano, namely Herculaneum, which was destroyed by Vesuvius. And when you visit Herculaneum, which has been excavated from 50 feet of solidified boiling mud, 
know, it was boiling mud, but it solidified. Um, when you visit that city, you can look up and see Mount Vesuvius, which is still active. It's a little bit concerning. But it gives you a perspective of the disaster that came upon the city. And they were faced by two disasters because of earthquakes, which caused a tsunami. They were on the, the seashore. So if you try to flee to the seashore, it's just going to push you right back because of the tsunami, the tidal wave. And then you have 50 feet of boiling volcanic mud that are meeting you in the middle. What they suffered was an unbearable, horrible death. And you get a sense of the power of that destructive force when you stand in the city and you see the mountain looming over you. Micah wants us to think of God's judgment in similar terms. He says, it's not a volcano you're worrying about. It's something greater. God who levels Mount Vesuvius and splits open valleys, a judgment that no one can possibly endure. Humans have withstood many, many painful and difficult things with power of will and force of exertion, even without anesthetic, as they brace themselves and they grin and they bear it. But we're talking about a judgment and a destruction that no one could possibly bear by gritting their teeth or holding the bed rail of the hospital bed. It's too powerful. It cannot be endured. We see also that God's judgment is unavoidable. Micah says in chapter 1 and verse 9 that Israel's wound is incurable. This disease is going to go all the way. The language of an incurable wound is used throughout the prophets. You have a wound, it's fatal. You are going to die. There's no escaping it. And there's no escaping it because, above all, because it is God who has determined to judge. And if God has determined to judge, then no one can stop his judgment. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Yahweh speaks, Jehovah speaks, Behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. There's no wiggling your way out of this destruction and this judgment. It is unbearable. Mountains leveled, valleys split open. It is unavoidable. It's incurable. You cannot remove your necks. If you try to hide yourselves in the mountains, God will level them. If you hide yourselves in the valleys, God will split them open. You cannot possibly escape. You cannot possibly endure. You cannot possibly flee from the work of God. Now, I trust that we all understand that the judgment of God upon Samaria and years later upon Judah is a picture of a greater judgment that all sinners must face. A greater judgment. You think, what could be a greater judgment than your city being defeated and your people being slain and exiled and deported? As horrible as those judgments were, they were finite. They ended. They're long since finished. But the judgment that we must face as sinners does not end. It's infinite and eternal. I'm speaking, of course, of hell. The death of the soul that God has destined man for, for every sinner who dies in his sins, 
They are sent to hell. Their soul is sent to hell where they will experience the judgment of God that is unbearable and inescapable. How could you escape it? By not dying. Can any of you not die? No, we we cannot. We all know that death is our fate, but death is simply the portal. It is simply the entrance into an everlasting life, in this case, an everlasting death that cannot be avoided and cannot be escaped. Now the earth is full of, do not preach, we do not want to hear. That's hate speech. That's offensive. Don't judge. Just love everyone. But we must declare coming judgment, certain judgment, unbearable judgment, inescapable and unavoidable judgment, which will be poured out on all those who hate God and live and die in their own sins. And this judgment begins at death. As the soul is banished to hell and the suffering of the soul begins, that desperation, that despair, that guilt, and the rage and the regret and the madness that it induces, the despair, there is no hope. There is no way out. There is no escape. The guilt, I know I'm guilty. My conscience accuses me forever and ever. My conscience won't stop accusing me. The regret, not a godly regret, but I knew, I heard the gospel. I I could have believed, but I did not. I refused. Why didn't I believe? It's that madness. Why didn't I? I knew, I heard. I'm guilty, and yet rage. Why did God, why did God... All of that madness that goes on and on and on, the suffering of the soul. But that's just the beginning. Because when Jesus Christ returns, he will raise all the dead and he will give them bodies suitable for an eternal destiny. And the suffering of the soul that begins now at death will be augmented. It will be multiplied and increased as there is a new suffering for a new body designed to always burn but never be burned up, to always die and yet never be dead, to always long to be with and see the light of God and never, ever see it. This is the judgment. This is the destruction of the soul and the body of the wicked that is coming certainly, unbearably, and unavoidably as the doom of all sinners. Micah needed the Israelites to understand you will be judged for your idolatry. You will be judged for your sin against man. Your sin against God and your sin against man, you will be judged. And you must understand this also. But this brings us to our second lesson. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Micah chapter 2 concludes with this wonderful promise that God himself, Jehovah, will gather the remnant of Israel into a flock. He will break open the walls that enclose them. 
He will lead them out through the breach in the walls as their deliverer, as their king, as their leader, as their shepherd. And this is, of course, a direct portrayal and a direct promise of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Deliverance from what? Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, Arise and go, get out, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. In the Old Testament, God had told the Israelites that he would cause his name to dwell among them. That is his presence. His presence would rest among his people. And his people would have rest in Canaan, rest from all their enemies. There is rest of God's name among the people and rest for God's people in that holy land. But God also told them that if they practice idolatry and the wickedness of the nations, then the land will vomit them out. A holy land cannot sustain an unholy people. So in chapter 2 and verse 10, Micah is saying, get out of the holy land. This is no place for you to rest, nor is it a place for God's name to rest because of your uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. But God provided a deliverance, a deliverer. He provided a blood better than the blood of animals that could cure the incurable wound and cleanse the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. And it was not through the old covenant, but rather it was through the new covenant and the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect king, who indeed led his people out of captivity, spiritual captivity, through a new covenant whose promise is the forgiveness of sins. And in the blood of Jesus Christ, given to us in the new covenant, we find that wonderful and beautiful forgiveness and cleansing that we need to avoid the unavoidable judgment and to not to bear the unbearable judgment because Jesus has done this for us. And in him we find that having our sins forgiven in his blood and having his perfect obedience attributed to us, we are therefore just. We are justified in the eyes of God. And if God looks upon us and sees no sin because the blood of Jesus has washed us, and if he sees Jesus' perfect righteousness, that is his life of obedience attributed to us, why would he condemn us? He cannot condemn us. He is just, perfectly just, and his justice approves us in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now, as Paul says in Romans 8, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, not even a, a purgatory on the way. We have been saved from our sins. As we read just today, as Jesus declared to that woman who loved him so much because she was forgiven so much, he said, your faith has saved you. Her sins were forgiven as she trusted in Jesus Christ and loved him by faith. Jesus frees us from judgment. Brothers and sisters, is that just a normal thing to you? Yes, we know. We've heard. This is not our first time at church. Oh, may it never be the case that the good news of the gospel is, yes, I've read that book before. Yes, I've heard that before. 
It's a favorite, but it's normal now. We should be constantly refreshed in our appreciation of the gospel. I deserve that condemnation. I am a sinner in myself, but God has freed me in Jesus Christ. Praised be his name. But I need to say this. Who are the ones that receive this freedom from judgment? Because judgment has been poured out on Jesus. It's only those that accept the message of judgment. Remember, people said, do not preach. And Micah said, should you say that? Should you reject the word of God? Should you push the message of judgment away? No, Micah says you should embrace the message of judgment because God's word does good and blesses the one who walks uprightly. So those who accept the message of judgment and humble themselves before God, they will be blessed in Christ Jesus. Only those who acknowledge their sin are the ones who run to Christ by faith and receive salvation. Isn't that one of the things we ask when we bring in a new member and especially when we prepare them for baptism, but when we bring in a new member, we ask, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God? And without hope apart from Jesus Christ, that's one of the things we ask because we all need to have that, that conscientiousness, that awareness. I, in myself, am a wicked miserable sinner but in christ i am redeemed i'm a new creation i'm a child of god and then thus cleansed and forgiven the spirit says of us this is a place to rest god's presence dwells within us and among us and we say of god's presence it is a place to rest god is with us and we are with god because there is no condemnation for us praise god Number three and four, briefly. Number three, God will not condemn his children, but he will chastise them. God will not condemn his children, but he will chastise them. Micah declares judgment on Judah and Israel. God declares judgment on mankind. And we might think, well, we're in Christ. There's no judgment for us. We can safely just forget all these things. But that's not the way that we should think. Because God did not save us that we might live in sin. God saved us that we might live in sanctity, in holiness, in obedience. And so God's children who disobey or sin, God will discipline them. He will chastise them, not with judgment and condemnation, but with a fatherly loving discipline that restores and corrects and sanctifies his people. He does this through his word. He does this through the testimony of his spirit in our hearts. He does this through the formal church. He does this through fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ and other means. God is not a negligent father, but a loving father, and he will chastise us. But if there is any in our midst who would think, I am saved, therefore I may sin as I please, then you are no child of God at all. And you should read 1 John again, because those who claim to be the children of God but live like children of the devil are not the children of God, but are, in fact, the children of the devil. And so those who have salvation are those who trust in Jesus Christ, and those who have assurance are those who not only trust in Christ, but also those who strive to be holy and repent of their sins and lay hold of God's grace for renewal. God will discipline, and he will chastise 
but he will never condemn his children. Fourthly and lastly, God never abandons his people. God never abandons his people. Think with me about the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria. I don't know if I can blame anyone else. I probably just have to blame myself. I don't know if it was a sermon or seminary or anything or if it's just me, but there was a time when I had the idea in my head that when the kingdom split, the northern kingdom was basically just completely detached and was essentially a pagan nation. It might as well be Assyria. It might as well be Babylon. And all that God was really concerned about was Judah, the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem, and the Davidic line of kings. In my mind, the northern kingdom ceased to be the people of God and the ten tribes. That was wrong. That's not true. That's not accurate. And the book of Micah is one of the many evidences of why that's a wrong way of thinking. As Micah, during the divided kingdom, addresses himself as a prophet of God to God's people who are Israel and Samaria, Judah and Jerusalem, he speaks to them. And so we need to understand that despite all of the wickedness of Samaria, despite all of the wickedness of Israel, God remained faithful to them. He remained their God. He sent his prophets to them. He even blessed their kings in certain ways. We could go into detail about that, but there's no time. God did not abandon or neglect or cut off the ten tribes of the kingdom of Israel. And Micah gives us a clear evidence of that as he addresses them. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, when God promises the new covenant, he says that he will make the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God says the coming salvation is not just for the southern kingdom. The coming salvation is also for the northern kingdom, for Samaria. And what did Jesus do during his life and his ministry? He went to the Samaritans. We all know the story of the Samaritan woman. And he declared the gospel to her. The salvation of the Christ is for you, Samaritan woman, and for all the Samaritans. And what did Jesus do after he was risen from the dead? What did he tell his apostles? He said, go and announce this in Jerusalem. And then where? and in Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. So Jesus, during his life and ministry, brought the gospel to the northern kingdom, and Jesus, through his apostles, brought the gospel, the new covenant, to the northern kingdom. And that remnant that at the end of Micah 2 that God talks about collecting and uniting into a flock, a multitude of men, a noisy multitude of men, it's built out of the Judeans. And it's built out of the Samarians or the Samaritans. And it's built out of the ends of the earth, you and me. So God saved the remnant of Judah. He saved the remnant of Samaria. And he saved the Gentiles. And so if it was in any way in your mind that the northern kingdom was cut off and forgotten or just completely obliterated by God, that's not true. He never abandons his people. He made promises to all the tribes of Israel, and he saved a people from all the tribes of Israel. And we are a part of that church. We are a part of that body, that flock, with Jesus, God himself, as our leader, as our deliverer, as our head, as our king. And we get to join with the Judeans and the Samaritans in one body in Jesus Christ. And we get to know and to be assured and reassured that God never abandons his people. As he did not abandon them, so he will never abandon us. Praise be God. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are just and holy and that you punish wickedness. We also thank you that you are merciful and gracious and that you provide salvation freely to all those who will receive it in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are part of that remnant, collected and brought together as a noisy multitude of men in one church, one assembly, one body, one flock, with a perfect and good shepherd, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to be a faithful people, to be an obedient people, to be a a grateful people, to be a holy people, to be a light in darkness, and to continue to bring in that remnant to the ends of the very earth. Help us, we ask, and bless us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.